Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about organic farming, permaculture, and sustainable family farming with Elvira DeBridget. Hello, Elvira. Hi there. Hi. So, let me say a little bit about you. Elvira Bridget DeBridget has investigated and chronicled the production of real food while living in farming communities throughout Northern California and Hawaii. She and her family moved to the Capay Valley 17 years ago, and Elvira began teaching the children of local farmers, which allowed her to gain an insider's view of farming as a business. She's also got an insider's view because she's working a farm with her husband. Um, Elvira's book is titled Why We Farm, Stories from the Farmers of the Capay Valley. So, hello. How are you? I'm good today. Thanks. So, what's your weather like today? Well, it's a little hard to see because we have a fire nearby. I woke up this morning to a lot of smoke in the air. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's not uncommon this time of year. And where in California are you? We are about an hour um, an hour west of Sacramento. Right. Great. Um, so, so tell us a bit about, you know, what is sustainable farming and permaculture and organic farming, and, and why are these approaches to farming so important in this day and age? Yeah, well, as many of your listeners probably know, agriculture is one of the largest you know, pollution sectors today, um, and we talk a lot about transportation being a big polluter, but agriculture you know, comes in, I don't know, either on top or really close second to that. And um, so, so with permaculture and organic sustainable methods of farming, they're really reducing the, those risks um, in several ways. You know, it's not just... Um, you know, using less chemicals on the farm, but also, um, yeah, then that leads to less nitrogen runoff into our water systems. Um, but these farmers that I'm going to be talking about today are also exploring different methods, um, you know, to really help the soil sequester carbon so we have less carbon loss um, and no-till methods. So, yeah, there's a lot going on here that's important for our environment. And is permaculture the same thing as organic farming? No, it's really not. You could think of it as maybe as a subculture to organic farming, um, but it's really some different methods that were developed by um, Bill Mollison, who I believe is Australian, and... Um, it has a lot more to do with the design on the land and so working with the land and water features. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's just a different, little bit different methods. But permaculture, it includes organic. Like, you can't have a permaculture farm without being organic. But you can have an organic farm without being permaculture. Interesting. Interesting. And then sustainable farming. 
Yeah, I would say, you know, both organic and permaculture farms are different ways of trying to be sustainable, um, which, you know, is trying to make sure that this land, especially, you know, the health of the soil will be, you know, continuing on for generations and be able to sustain itself eventually. So it makes explicit what the other techniques have more implicit. It makes it explicit that this is going to be able to continue on for a long time. That's really interesting, a good clarification there. Thank you. Um, What are some of the most pressing issues that the family farmers are facing today? Hmm, that's a good question. There's, you know, there's always the age-old problems of the weather, and that's gotten more extreme now with the climate changes. Um, And then there's also just the market pressures, which are really extreme for family farmers now because so much globalization. Um, So really the cheap food um, market is a big pressure and um, and that pressure comes in a few ways. It's not just about, you know, them having to offer lower prices on their food and it also has to do with um, regulations that happen because of this global food market. Um, a lot of times our state and federal government will... Um, you know, have put regulations on farms as a whole, and they're mostly looking at big agribusiness farms, but the small farmers have to follow those regulations too, and that can be a real hardship. Oh, I imagine, because they don't have the capacity, and yet they still have to meet the standards. Right. Yeah, and to pay for an inspection, you know, it's really ex- expensive. And Yeah, and the poor farms have to fill out all this paperwork, and they'd rather be out working on the farm. Yeah, that's another issue for sure. (laughs) And, you know, it seems that uh, when the harvest is good, the prices go low, and when the harvest is poor, um, then it's hard to move the product because it's not good quality. Yeah, so you can't win for trying. (laughs) Yeah. So let's get specific to a place. And the place that you write about in your book, and your book is titled... um, What's your book title? It's called Why We Farm, Farmers' Stories of Growing Our Food and Sustaining Their Business. And then down below it says, Featuring Farmers of the Cape Valley. Okay, so tell me about the Cape Valley. How did you discover it and come to live there? Yeah, I really kind of came here by a fluke, but... I guess one easy answer would be to say that it is just an hour and a half drive from the edge of the San Francisco Bay Area. And I grew up for part of my life anyway in Berkeley, California. So I, you know, had, and then I went to school in Davis for my undergraduate work. So I was nearby. I kind of knew of this area, but Like a lot of people today, even really close by, like Davis and Sacramento, they don't really know where Cape Valley is or have never heard of it before. Um, There's just a little two-lane highway that goes up through the valley um, and kind of connects um, like a woodland 505 big central valley area with... um, Clear Lake and, you know, some people might drive through as they're going up north or maybe to Fort Bragg. Um, But Mm. I 
so I just kind of found it by a fluke because I had started to explore the area and my husband and I at the time we were looking for a place to be out in the country and um, and just yeah just through exploring we found this place and well it sounds like you found something really great so why is this such a microcosm of good practice yeah it is I mean I can give you some examples of how it's um it's just become well why it could be because the place is so small, and so farmers here mm-hmm. couldn't expand into big agribusiness practices really um, I mean there was definitely some effort at that, like people um back probably in the fifties and sixties, there were orchards here, and then a lot of those fruits and nuts mainly were just being sold um, on the commodity market. And um, that all, you know, kind of fell apart because people were getting such low prices and people, you know, decided to move to the city. And so this place became what it is today um, after that in the late 70s and early 80s when people who wanted to explore these ideas of sustainable agriculture um, moved here, and um, well, like some of the people I talked to, they didn't even know really. They just, you know, came and bought an old farm, like um, Blue Heron Farm. The farmers there, they said, at first they were just, um, you know, doing what the old timers told them to do, just the um, standard practices. But then, when they had their own children, they started realizing, oh, we don't want to have all these poisons around the farm, and so they switched to organic. Um, but other people came here with that intent that they wanted to explore um, organic farming. And um, and so they've just been on the forefront, you know, like a lot of California history where things start to happen and then it grows. So there was some good connections here with um, local restaurants in the Bay Area that were just starting to make big names for themselves, like Chez Panisse, um, came up here looking for good farm good food that they could um, that they could use in their restaurant. There's a lot of little stories like that of how this place, um, in, yeah, took some original ideas, um, like the community-supported agriculture back when no one had heard what that was, and um, and built it up into strong businesses that are here today and are now, some of them are second-generation farms. That's really interesting because here in New England, you know, we have small areas like that for farms, and we're always hearing about, you know, them losing out to the big operations, even the cranberry bogs, you know, they've got bigger oh. ones in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. And, and so it's just really encouraging to hear that there's hope for small farms, uh, I guess because it's the, the restaurants and the buyers are looking for that kind of product. Yeah, that's right. It's all about the relationship with the buyers. Good news. Um, I'm talking with Elvira de Bridget, and um, uh, well, oh, tell us about a day in the, the farming life of you and your husband. I know that I understand that he does more farming, and, and you do also, you know, work as an educator and as a writer and stuff. But uh, right. walk us 
what a day is like for you guys on the farm. Yeah, and we both do have jobs off the farm, but my husband was, did have his own full-time farm um, at one point and, um, in Massachusetts, actually. And so, um, so, yeah, he just loves farming, and we have our own little homestead here called the Gettelstedl Gardens, and mostly it's for ourselves and to share with friends and family, but we do have just over an acre of olives that we planted about 12 years ago and that we sell olive oil from. And we also have some small little walnut grove that we sell walnuts from. So, yeah, a day in the life here, especially at this time in the summer, you know, California doesn't get much rain, so it at least starts out with... um, walking around the property and doing irrigation. And we're really fortunate here to live just um, just under an old irrigation canal that um, is called the Rumsey Ditch. And so we actually have gravity-fed irrigation. And um, even though that sounds probably ideal to many people, it has its own problems. <laughs> and one of them is... You know, the water pressure might not be big enough to have a big sprinkler going, so you have to constantly be moving these hoses that are just little um, dribbles of water. And, um, yeah, so our day kind of starts out there and then checking out how things are doing, what's ready to harvest, and what's, what's needing attention, what's needing pruning or you know, taking out and planting a new row somewhere. It sounds like you're very good at keeping the weeds down. Here in Massachusetts, there used to be a lot of weeding that my relatives talk about. Oh, yeah, we have a lot of weeds. And, um, and yeah, like one of my farmer friends said, you have to really, a farmer has to not base his pride on the look of his field, you know, if there's weeds out there, because a lot of times the weeds are not really as bad, causing as many problems as you might think, as long as, especially if you can keep them down before the seeds get get up. and Right, as long as they don't shade the plant out. Yeah. I have a cousin, I have a niece who won't eat peas or beans because she's weeded too many beans, you know, <laughs> <laughs> associated with the weeding process. Which isn't fair for the beans. Um, I understand that uh, figs are coming in this time of year. Yeah, this is fig season here in Northern California. And I guess these figs were probably brought with the missionaries. um, Because sometimes when I go out on hikes, I'll see, you know, old homesteads where the house isn't there any longer, but there's the fig trees, and they look really old and gnarled. but we have a few good fig trees on our property, and so we're drying them and just figuring out all different ways to eat them. And you'll take some to market, too? Well, our, our neighbors will. We don't take our oh, figs to market. They're too precious. And cucumbers <laughs> are good. Yeah, we've been having a lot of cucumbers this year. Um, yep. We just have kind of a standard greenhouse variety cucumber that we are growing in the field, and they're doing really well. So, 
my wife grows tomatoes in uh, Somerville, and um, we can tell how much rain, how wet or dry the summer's been by how big the tomatoes are. Um, yeah. Are you doing tomatoes too? Yeah, yeah. I think Yolo County, where we live, is one of the largest tomato producers in the country. Probably, um, that's where you know Heinz ketchup and all your <laughs> big tomato canneries used to be, and there's still a few here. Um, so yeah, we have we had a bumper crop earlier in the summer, but now they're kind of drying out. I, I finally realized that tomatoes um, around here are really just good for a few weeks. You know, they give off a good crop, and then after that, they're done, and no matter how much I water them. So I have to, I should have planted some more because um, we planted two rows, and if we had waited a few weeks and then planted another row every two or three weeks of the summer, we could have tomatoes going all summer long. Yeah. But, um, and you didn't because it was, seemed kind of dry or something? No, I think we just, you know, got busy with other things. And we thought, okay, we've got our tomatoes in. <laughs> and that's still a learning curve for us is to remember a month later, like, oh, yeah, maybe we should plant another row. <laughs> Sure. Right when they're coming in, you know, (laughs) like we've got tomatoes. That's when we should be planting more, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Vera, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after this break. All right. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
Illinois partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Elvira DeBridget, and she's a go-to expert on family farming and sustainable living. Elvira, um, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? Um, you can find me at whywefarmkpay.com, and kpay is spelled with a C, C-A-P-A-Y. And I've got a lot of information there. I have a little blog going and um, information from my book about Cape Bay Valley farmers. And a great photograph of you, too. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and the name of your book is? It's Why We Farm, Farmers' Stories of Growing Our Food and Sustaining Their Business which is really a lot of what I focus on. It's, it, the book is mostly looking at the small business models, that a variety of them from 15 different farmers. Fifteen. Well, we're going to talk about four of those farms, uh, but first I want to talk some more about the produce that you're taking off the land. Um, we were just talking about tomatoes. Uh, how about the woody plants like um, apples and pears? This is a good time of year for them, isn't it? Or it's the beginning or where? Yeah, it seems a little early almost. Um, And I guess that's not, you know, unusual around here. It's like we've been having a lot of early years, it seems. But um, this is also a hard place to grow apples and pears because it gets really hot in the summer. And it, you know, doesn't always frost in the winter, although we have had some winters where we've had you know, 17 degrees for a few days. Um, but anyway, we do, we've got a few varieties of apples that work here. Um, there's an old apple tree on the property that I'm not sure what variety it is. And yeah. yeah, and that's doing well. We just, um, we'll be making applesauce this, this afternoon, I hope. Um, and then we planted a pear that is, I really actually have been saying I need to take it into the county extension office and find out 
because I don't think it's the kind of pair we thought it was going to be, which is a Bartlett, but it's um, it's not that great for eating. So <laughs> every year oh, I'm trying to figure out, like, wait, how early should I be picking these pears? And then you have to let them ripen off the tree. So it's a big guessing game, and I've tried a lot of different timings over the last seven years, and I don't know. I haven't quite got it right yet, so mostly I use them as cooking pears, and I'm wondering, is that what, maybe it's just a cooking pear. (laughs) Yeah, that and pear brandy, where you grow the pear into a bottle and then put brandy. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's what it's for. It's very astringent on the outside. The peel never gets very good, and then... The consistency on the inside usually just turns to mush really quickly, so this might be another case of not being a good variety for this climate. Right, it's an heirloom pear that is not properly matched to the climate. Yeah, well, yeah, we planted this one, but sometimes when you get things from the nursery, it's mislabeled, and it's always an experiment here. Always an adventure. Never know what to expect. Yeah. Expect the unexpected. You just get up every day and take a walk around like you were saying. And <laughs> yeah. I bet you've seen some things over the years. Yeah, and I should say that my husband also has this fascination with pushing the envelope, and he has a little small tropical greenhouse, um, and we have some bananas ripening right now and mangoes. Um, and even outside of the greenhouse, we have a pawpaw tree. This was the first time that we'd ever harvested from just last week. We got to taste some of our own pawpaws. So that was pretty fun. That is amazing. We never see that around here, I don't think. I yeah, there were you know, the jungle books. And yeah. Yeah. And then... Um, and you have a lot of olives and walnuts, and when are they in season? Yeah, that'll be coming soon, towards the end of September. The walnuts will probably be ready, and the olives are interesting. You have to wait until some of the olives, you know, they all start out green, and supposedly the ideal time to harvest is when a third of them are green, and a third of them are red, and a third of them are black. Um, so we're expecting to have a harvest party mid-October. Um, we just kind of had to pick a date and hope that that's going to be the right time. Well, I'm sure you have a good sense of how things are progressing. Yeah, and it looks like it's going to be a good year. There's a lot of olives. Wonderful. Uh, so let's talk about some individual farmers that you write about in your book. Um, uh, an example of... Uh, Permaculture is a spreadwing farm. Tell me a bit more about why you like and what you learned about spreadwing farm. Yeah, they are really just starting out. They started in 2010, um, but weren't. You know, they were just bought the land then, I think. Um, and they are farming on five acres of. I think they have maybe 30 acres. Um, and they are doing a lot of stone fruit, apricots and peaches, which are, this was their first year that they had stone fruit to sell at market. And um, 
And before that, when they, you know, had the young trees, they were also planting a lot of peppers and okra and garlic. Those were kind of the main crops that got them through some really lean years. They um, they actually, for a couple of years now, have been supplying some specialty peppers to the Google cafeteria down in San Francisco or wherever it is that they're, um, you know, have places for their employees to come and eat lunch. That's kind of fun. Yes, it is. How can you tell that their practice is permaculture? Well, yeah. Um, Permaculture, like I said, it has a lot to do with design and then also just special soil amendments that are used. So, um, yeah, one way permaculture, what I always think of is that it has to do with, like, which crops you want to put closer to the house and having... um, you know, good visibility and access to, and then the orchards being farther out on the edges of the property and sometimes making, like, little mounds around the plants, like swells for holding some of the water around that plant a little longer. Um, um, I guess what I think of when I think of Spread Wing Farm is the fact that they didn't have a tractor at all until um, just this year that they did get a tractor, but they've been doing it all with um, on these walk-behind um, tillers. I forget what they're called, a B3 or something. <laughs> but, um, they were pushing tiller. Yeah. And, um, and they're really... Having another thing is that when I say they have a lot of stone fruit, what they did that was really unique is they have maybe like I want to say like thirty or forty different varieties of peaches out there um, in their orchard. So they're really like trying to you know not just rely on one type of variety of fruit, um, and that can be really difficult because, you, ha- you know, they require different timing for everything, you know, for the harvesting especially, um, and so it's a lot of hands-on work. It's, um, yeah, just daily attention, not something you can just say, oh, yeah, we're going to you know, hire a crew to come out here on such and such day and it's all going to be, you know, the main harvest is going to happen in a week. It's not like that at all. Yes, so it's, like you said, it's, um, as there are many different um, species and as they come into fruit, they have to be harvested. So it's a constant kind of, but it's also pacing it so that a a limited number of people can, can manage it, I guess. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. They have, it's just really the two of them as a couple, and then recently they have another couple that's moved on, moved in as partners, but they're doing a different aspect of farming there on the property. With um, So so anyway, yeah, that's really just two or three people of doing this whole farm, and um and, yeah, something else I was going to say. It'll come back to me. 
Well, let's move on to another farm, and if it comes back to you, you can stick it in. Oh, but, okay. Uh, Actually, I was just going to say that with oh, all that ahead. variety of fruit, one reason that they planted for such a large variety of species was because they wanted to have, you know, the very early, early stone fruit and then the very late season, and especially with thought to the great climate changes that are happening, they figured, well, you know, because if a frost happens early, then that might affect only the early stone fruit, but we'll still have some for the late season. So I think it was a really smart choice on their half, on their part. Yes, they're planting for resiliency, you know, yeah. making the, the, the trees more resilient to the climate changes. Yeah, uh, well, making their farm species. resilient, <laughs> yeah, by having such a variety. Yeah, so that if, if one class or one season fruiting gets hurt, you've got other ones to, you know, and, and we're expecting, you know, oscillating weather events, so it's difficult to know exactly when, what's going to happen when and stuff, so this is very wise. Uh, yeah. Full Belly Farm is an organic farm. Tell me about that farm. So, yeah, Full Belly um, was one of these people who came, a couple, um, Paul and Drew Muller moved here about 30 years ago or more, and um, Paul came from a traditional farming family, but he was really interested in organic practices and so they started out, um, you know, just rough scrabble learning as they went, and um, they had some different vegetables planted, and, and they were the ones who started exploring first with community-supported agriculture, having like a membership where people subscribe to the farm and get a box every week of vegetables. So they were really on the forefront of that CSA movement, and um, and they were also um, one of the first farms that were contacted by um, Alice Waters of Saint-Panice to, at the time, she was looking for some really fine baby lettuces, and um, and it was a really interesting um, growth out of that relationship because, um, like, the full-belly farmers were not going out and seeking that relationship and they didn't know what the restaurant wanted but um, you know but the restaurant got in contact with them and they were able to develop this relationship and and grow something that worked for both of them and now this farm has really diversified they've um, you know through wanting to have sustainable practices they realized that livestock was an important part of the family farm and so they started with sheep and you know rotate those sheep through the crops after the harvest and so the sheep are eating what's left and you know obviously leaving the manure as fertilizer um, and they the sheep don't compact the soil as much as some other livestock so um in doing that, they started then selling wool and meat, um, and flowers are another way that they've expanded. Um, you know, people are starting to realize that 
organic flowers are important, too. If you want to have flowers in your home, you can support the organic agriculture movement and the health of the planet by buying organic flowers. And, um, yeah, they've really diversified is what I'm trying to say. Full Belly has grown and, and has so many different crops now that they market and take. That really helps them, again, to um, have some security on their farm because if certain crops don't do well, they have something else in place. Um, and they also have a, recently, with the children, the, the second generation of um, the Muller family, They've started doing a lot of um, value-added products. So now, instead of just growing tomatoes, they're also selling tomato sauce and jams and delis, and, and they have a beautiful certified kitchen, and they host farm dinners and catered events. So they've you know, found a way to support a lot of people living on this farm and a lot of farmers who have year-round employment just um, yeah, through the hard work and dedication of um, these, it's actually a multi-family partnership. So even though I just mentioned the the original family, the Mullers, but they formed a partnership with Judith Redman and Andrew Brait. Um, now they have, I think, five or six partners that are part of the farm. Very interesting. It's great that the Skylark Farm is doing so well and so diversified and involving expanding that was, numbers. That was full belly. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to get on to Skylark Farm, but first we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back to talk some more with Elvira DeBridget. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Alvira DeBridget who's the author of a new book called Why We Farm, and it contains stories from the farmers of the Cape Hay Valley. Elvira, how can people find you online and get in touch with you? Yeah, the best place is at whywefarmkpay.com, and I'm also on Facebook with Why We Farm, and Twitter also with Why We Farm. Yeah, it's great to use Facebook, and again, it's Why We Farm. Um, I, I'm excited about the next farm we're going to talk about, which is Skylark Farm, uh, which is known for its organic management of livestock. Tell us more. Right. Yeah, I just love these guys because um, Giles and Alexis, they were both um, students of environmental studies, um, land management and resources, and you know, it's just great to see people like that then turn to a life of livestock ranch management, um, and they've, they're doing really well with it. And they're, you know, one of their main focuses is um, seeing if with their sheep, if they can control some of the invasive weeds like the star thistle, which is really bad in the hills here in the pastures. Um, and to, yeah, they've had some success with that, and um, and meanwhile, well, they've had this great product to sell. I was going to ask a little more about what's the weed and how do they deal with it. Um, star thistle is this, yeah, really invasive small thistle that can grow in drought conditions, and it's really hard to get rid of the seeds, and so they just keep propagating and um, and they can be really damaging for horses and cattle to eat at certain times in its growth um, 
And so the sheep can come through and eat it in the spring, and then if you don't overgraze the land, um, then you can let other things grow over the star thistle. So, um, so yeah, it's a tricky business, and it's, it can be really great when applied to, I mean, there are so many places that could be in need of this help. Yeah, so managing the um, thistle. And, and what kind of livestock does Skylark Farm have, raised? They, they have a variety, and they've tried some different things. They're really focusing on the sheep, but they also have um, pigs, and they've had chickens and turkeys as well, I believe. So I know, you know, eggs are one way that they've really been able to, like I said, um, keep their farm going and get out of their other jobs. And um, so now, yeah, I think they they had a lot of, there's a whole, you have to read in the chapter that I wrote because it's an interesting evolution of, you know, going with chickens and eggs first and they had their sheep as more their experimental crop and then now the lamb and sheep and that they're selling is really taking off. So, good plug. I want to stop you short because we have, uh, you know, we're running out of time. And I want to ask about one more farm, and then um, step back about the bigger, you know, um, what you've discovered from talking with other farmers and some of the takeaways. So, uh, briefly, tell me a bit about the River Dog Farm. Yeah. Well, they are. I don't know. A little bit more recently. I guess started here in 1995, and they have 350 acres under cultivation, a lot of mixed vegetables and fruits. Um, it's a family-run truck farm is what we call it. You know, they're taking a lot of food by truck to wholesale markets, but they also really sustained their farm with their community-supported agriculture subscriptions and... Um, and that's been a real challenge in recent years because CSA memberships are kind of going up and down right now. They're in kind of a down cycle. So if you've ever thought about doing a CSA, you should um, really look into it because it's a great way. To, you just get a box of vegetables, and Trini from Riverdog was always putting in recipes each week, and, um, and you get this whole variety of really fresh um, vegetables, which... Um, kind of in what we're finding, what um, Tim from Riverdog was telling me recently that a lot of people are switching over to these like prepared, or not prepared, but meals in a box that you get and prepare yourself. And yeah. he was he was explaining to me how you know those vegetables go to a big central warehouse first in order to get. You know, placed in these individual boxes and then shipped out through the mail, and that's a whole different system than the CSA, which is usually just harvested, you know, the day before and then brought either to your doorstep or to a pickup spot. Um, so you're getting much fresher vegetables in the CSA box. Yeah, and the CSAs or it are at the farm, so. That's, it's really exciting for families to, you know, oh. have to pick up the groceries because they get to go to the farm and they get yeah. to tell the, the other parent, you know, what happened at the farm today. 
so it's a it's so much more interesting than that's the right yeah and here people will get their boxes closer to home but they have farm days when they can come out several times a year and visit right. they and know harvest. where it's coming from so important exactly and they feel like they're supporting their local farm instead of they're just a grocer and stuff yeah um, exactly so what have you discovered from talking with all these farmers I'm kind of getting into the gist of, you know, the best parts of your book and stuff about, um, you know, what what are some of the commonalities that these farmers have? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we were just touching on it there with that relationship between the farmer and the customer. And um, I guess before I wrote this book, I sort of knew that that was important, but I didn't realize the full depth of it. Um, and... Yeah, it's not just about the farmer being able to, you know, market to the customer and know what the customer wants, but it's also really important for um, the general public and customers, I guess, to know, um, yeah, what's going on at the farm and the different challenges that the farmers are facing. Um, and, And also just to be in touch with, yeah, these different cycles. I was saying before that the farmers are really like ambassadors um, between the plant world, the animal world, and the general public people in the cities if you're just, you know, not able to really be so close to nature. Um, but that is that was a really common thing that I found in talking to the farmers is that they they really knew that they were dependent on that relationship with the customers and that so much was riding on that, not just only for their own businesses, but also, um, you know, in terms of the global food market, um, just that if family farms disappear, then people would have less choices in what kind of food they were eating. Yes, and, you know, I'm often to- asked about, you know, I do a lot of ocean conservation work and conservation work, and so they're asking me about, isn't the human population a problem? And, you know, when communities feed themselves, like Bangladesh is feeding itself, so it can't call that a problem. And it's so important what the work that you're doing, which is connecting people to their food sources so that they understand the rhythms. And so they discovered that, you know, nothing tastes better than corn off the farm, you know. <laughs> and so right. you know, we discover these connections to that. But, yeah, we're, we're, the, the whole sensibility is that the corn is a huge combine and then it goes to a silo and, you know, it ends up as corn syrup in your Coca-Cola or something. And just, it's such a disconnect. And, and the work you're doing is so great in reconnecting people to their food sources. Uh, I guess I'm kind of stiff, stepping ahead here, but... Um, so what are some of the takeaways that uh, people are going to get from your book and, um, of course, you know, from this conversation we're having? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're really touching on it about how community really grows around the food that we're eating and food that's being grown for us and that it's a way to bring people together and, um, and yeah, this book, you can really learn about what goes into 
the process of growing this food. And, um, and yeah, it was interesting what you were just saying about the corn because I recently heard of um, one of the interns that used to work at Full Belly Farm has gone on to have a small organic vegetable farm in Iowa in the middle of all these cornfields and are feeding the farmers there with the fresh organic (laughs) food. So, yeah, that's a really great example of how, you know, the farming, cultivating these relationships. I'm curious to see what will come out of that. But, um, yeah, one of the big takeaways was that it's really worth paying attention to what we eat and paying extra, um, you know, because it's healthier for us. And you're going to find healthier food by buying it local from a farmer that you know. And and you're also going to be supporting this community of farmers around your area. Like you said, if the city can feed itself, then um, there's going to be so many benefits from that, just having a local food shed that you can rely on um, and then be, yeah, less dependent on the global market. And that would mean a lot less um, environmental impact in many ways. Yeah, you mentioned earlier understanding seasonability. So there's a time to buy asparagus and there's a time not to buy asparagus. <laughs> right, exactly. And we're pretty lucky in that we can, you know, you don't have to go too far to find some variety. Um, I don't know how it is there on the East Coast, but, you know, here we can just, you know, if we go a few hundred miles, a couple hundred miles, we can find some greens that are not growing in our valley at the moment. And um, so, yeah, going to a farmer's market and having people from being willing to drive there from, you know, 100 miles or so, you get a lot of variety. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, that's true. And, yeah, and, but it's also fun just the way the seasons come around. You know, now you can pick strawberries and now you can pick blueberries and then you can yeah. pick apples and uh, just getting into the swing of things um, is is uh, really kind of interesting. Here on the coast, we have the base base scallops come in at certain times and stuff, uh, which makes them taste better, I think. Um, but we've gone through our time together. And um, Elvira DeBridget, I want to thank you for um, taking this time. Uh, once again, what's the best way for people to learn about your work and to get in touch with you? Yeah, you can go to whywefarmkpay.com, and that's spelled C-A-P-A-Y. Um, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Why We Farm. And, yeah, it's been great talking to you, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Elvira. Thank you all for listening today. And to all of you, take care. And then let's take a moment to take care of this planet. Uh, And one way is by supporting uh, local smaller farms. Um, So thank you for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. 